a very nice class. We want to look at a general background to the study of all the Old Testament. And in that general background to the study of the Old Testament, we want to look at three things. First of all, general facts about the Bible as a whole. Secondly, facts about the Old Testament. And then third, as we have on the board, a survey of the history of the Old Testament. Now, I want to look at those three major things. General facts about the Bible as a whole. Secondly, facts about the Old Testament itself. And then third, a general survey of the history of the Old Testament. All right, let's begin with the general facts about the Bible as a whole. And I have ten of them there, and I much time on these. First of all, I stated the purpose of the Bible. I think it would be well for us to nail that down at the very beginning. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to First Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 16 and 17. And what is this? I didn't bring a Bible. First Timothy chapter 3. I that I buy your Bible. First Timothy chapter 3, verses. Second Timothy chapter three verse fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen. Second Timothy chapter three verse fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen. Now I see a couple of you looking over in the old Testament. It's not there. It's over in the new Testament. Second Timothy chapter three verse fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. That's in the path I have told the Holy Scriptures that you're able to make me wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by the grace of God, and all scripture is profitable for teaching, uh, conviction, restoration, education in righteousness, that the man of God may be well adjusted, really furnished unto all good works. Now, notice in verse 16, you got, you have, uh, you have two statements, you have one section, all scripture. And by the word scripture, Paul refers to the Old Testament. All scripture, And he makes two statements about all scripture. What are those two statements? First, all, all scripture is what? Uh, given by inspiration of God. That means all scripture, Theot, Lucian, all scripture is God's dream. All scripture is the product of God's almighty power. All scripture is inspired. That's the Old Testament. The second thing that tells us is that not only is all scripture inspired, but all scripture is what? Profitable. Now, it's profitable for three things. It means three basic spiritual needs. Verse 15 is profitable for the first thing. What is that? If you have your Bible, look at it. And this be wise unto what? Verse 15. I was profitable for salvation. The Jesus means how to be saved. Salvation. Verse 16 is profitable for teaching, restoration, conviction, uh, restoration, education in life living. We call that sanctification. So the Bible is profitable spiritual growth and sanctification. And then in verse 17, it's profitable for faithful. That the man of God may be well adjusted, clearly furnished unto every good work. Now, what would start with an F? 
That would mean every good work. What is it? Faith. Faith. When you repent, what are my three basic spiritual needs? How to be saved. Once I'm saved, how to live a life that pleases God, sanctification. And third, how to serve God effectively. So the Bible is possible, and here is what is called the great locus classicus of the inspiration and prophet of the Bible. All the Bible is inspired, and secondly, all the Bible is profitable for three basic spiritual needs. Verse 15, for salvation, which teaches me how to be saved. Verse 16, for sanctification, holiness of life, which teaches me how I can grow here. Whether it's the book of Philippians, or, bless Father, that I son, the book of Proverbs. Sanctification. And then third, it teaches me how I can serve God effectively. That's the prophet of the Bible. And that's the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is not to, uh, uh, the purpose of the Bible is not to make you a great Bible student. Nobody does it. The more you study the Bible, the more you discover you but scratch the surface of the Bible. Well, the larger the area I discovered, I studied the Bible a long time, I discovered the larger the area of my knowledge of the Bible, like a circle, the larger is the area of my ignorance. When I got out of seminary, I knew all about the Bible. After about 30 years, I discovered I'm profoundly ignorant of the Bible. And we're always studying and learning the Bible. The Bible is inexhaustible. Yet, at the same time, at the same time, a young child, a young boy can come to the Bible, learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, discover that he's a sinner, that he needs to trust Jesus as Savior, and trust him as he saves. As, uh, as all the Augustine, Augustine said that, about the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a lamb to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And that's true of all the Bible. The Bible is shallow enough for a little child to get into it and study it and learn from it and be saved out of the truth of the Word of God. Learn how to live for Christ. And yet the profoundest student of the Bible has never exhausted it. Never can exhaust. The Bible's been exhausted. So that's the purpose of the Bible. Then secondly, notice three plain suppositions in our study. Now I'm not going to. I'm not going to uh, uh, take any time to discuss these. When we come to the Bible, and I hold in my hands this King James Bible. And it'd be the same thing as the New American Standard Bible or the NIV, whatever it is. I ask three questions about this Bible. First of all, is this Bible the Word of God? Is this Bible the plenarily, verbally inspired Word of God and inerrant? My answer to that is yes, it is. And the reason that I believe it is because Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, believes. 
Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. It's infallible. Jesus said Matthew chapter 5, the law and the prophets wouldn't pass away right down to the jot and the tittle. Very small parts of Hebrew letters. Yes, the Bible is the word of God. Secondly, do I have in my Bible the books that belong to the Bible? Or should I have some other books? Or perhaps there's a book or two in the Bible that ought not to be there. That's the problem of canonicity. And I believe, myself, that we have in the Bible those books which God himself inspired. We know we have them in the Old Testament because Jesus Christ authenticated the canon of the Old Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 23, you're not going to look at it. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He said that all the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. And that Zechariah is not the man of the book of Zechariah, but the Zechariah of Second Chronicles. In the Jewish Bible that had the same book, the Jewish Bible was arranged differently. The first book of the Jewish Bible was Genesis. The last book in the Old Testament, in the Jews' Bible, was Second Chronicles. Abel was in Genesis. Zechariah was found in Second Chronicles 21. So Jesus is saying, in effect, all of the prophets, all the prophets from Abel, Genesis, to Zechariah, 2 Chronicles 21, all the prophets in all the 39 books of the Bible. And Jesus Christ put his seal of approval on precisely the books that we have in our Old Testament. Now, that's the problem of canonicity. And I believe that what we have, the 66 books in our Bible, are those that are inspired of God. Did Paul write any other letters? Yes. He mentioned one in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Why don't we have it? Because he wasn't inspired. Were there other gospels written about Jesus' life? Yes, Luke chapter 1. How come they're not in the Bible? They weren't inspired. Inspiration determines canonicity. We have in our books the books that belong in the Bible. The third question we have to ask ourselves, and which we're not going to answer, is, is the, has the text been accurately transmitted? We know that we don't have the original autographs of the Bible. You know what an autograph is? The, the copy that Moses wrote, and the copy that John wrote, and the copy that Isaiah wrote. We don't have that. We don't have that. But we're not concerned about that. We're not concerned about whether we have the autograph, but whether we have the original text, which is to say, were the books of the Bible copied carefully and precisely? And that's the question of the transmission of the text. And the answer to that is yes, yes. It was transmitted carefully. One of, the, uh, one of the contributions of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was to show how pure a Hebrew text we have. 
until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in about 1946-1947, the closest manuscript of the Old Testament dated about 900 A.D. It's produced by a group of Hebrew-Jewish scholars called the Masoretes. So it's called the Masoretic Text. When I was in seminary, I took four years of Hebrew in seminary. When I was in seminary, the text that we used was the Masoretic Text. That dated to about 900 A.D. We had no manuscript earlier than 900 A.D. The last one, 400 B.C., that's a skip of 1,300 years. The question was always raised. Over 1,300 years, did the text get corrupted, or is it pure? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and, and some of the books in the Old Testament are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the value of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they're not dated 900 A.D. They're dated about 100 B.C. They take us a thousand years closer, a thousand years closer, within 300 years of 400 B.C. And you know what they found? They found that the, dead, the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls was almost precisely the same as the Masoretic text of 900 A.D., which means that we have a pure text, and the text is transmitted carefully. Matter of fact, when the Jews copied the Old Testament, they burned up the old manuscript. When they copied it, they'd get right in the middle of the Old Testament, and they'd count the words back, and they'd count the words forward. See? they count what would be the middle. Uh, let's say Psalm. They'd start in the middle of the Psalm, and they'd count the words right on back to Genesis 1. And then they'd count the words right on forward to Malachi 4, set, the end of Second Chronicles, to see that they tallied out exactly as they tallied out the previous time. They were very, very careful. We believe that the providence of God, God has kept us a pure text. Now, let me say something in that connection. I don't have any trouble at all standing up in the pulpit with a King James Bible and saying, this is the Word of God. We got a whole lot of translations out today. And I know the value of translations. I know the value of them. But the problem with some of them is that... Uh, that one man has the New American Version, and New American Standard Bible, another one has the NIV, another has Phillips, another has Berkeley, and another, you're reading from another one, and the man out there, you're reading along, and he's got different words, and, and you begin to sow doubt in his body. Do we really have the text of the New Testament? So I use the King James Bible in preaching, and I have no difficulty. And if I need to update a word, then I update it. I happen to know Greek, and I update it and, and, and give a, perhaps a clear statement of that word that's used, or the tense, or the effect of the preposition in the Greek. And, uh, and that's easy to do, not difficult to do. But for all practical purposes, yes, virtual inspiration, this is the word of God. And God has said that he honors his word above his name. That's found in the Psalms. All right, point number three. 
Point number three, the theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ, John 5, 39. Number four, the books of the Bible, 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Now I want you to be honest. Don't fudge here. How many of you could sit down right now and write out all the books in the Old Testament order? Let's see. Well, that's good. That's good. How many of you could do it in the New Testament? Well, that's better. That's better. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is to memorize the books of the Old Testament. You ought to know it, see. You ought to know it so that uh, either you ought to know it or sit on the back seat. <laughs> so, so that uh, when the man's preaching, you know, and he says, when you turn over to... Uh, I occasionally ask a man to turn over to Hezekiah, and a man down there will be looking for it for five minutes. And some of you right now don't know there's no book Hezekiah. See? So you ought to memorize the books in the Old Testament, memorize the books of the Old Testament. How do you do that? Well, very simple way. Write them out on a sheet of paper. Put them in your shirt. See? And when you're stopping at a red light, or when you've got a minute or two, pull it out and memorize it. Memorize it. Review, 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 review. That's the secret to learning. Review them. Get them down. So you know the books of the Old Testament, know the books of the New Testament, and you get familiarized with those books. Sixty-six books in our Bible. Now the names for the Bible, point number five. There are three names that are used in the Bible for the Bible. One of them is Bible. One of them is Holy Scripture. And one of them is, uh, what is it? Word of God. All right, look here. Three names. Word of God. Word of Hebrews 4.12. That term is used in the Bible to indicate the origin of the Bible. It comes from God. Therefore, it's the Word of God. Secondly, the word Holy Scripture, the word, you know, Scripture means writing. The Greek word is graphe, from which we get the word graphite, graphology. What's that pen that some of us use? What's that called? A scriptural pen? And the kind of right the scriptural. So this is holy writing. Holy scripture is holy writing. Then it's called also Bible. I suppose the term we use more often for the holy scriptures is the word Bible. Where did he get the word Bible? Well, well, uh, there are basically three kinds of materials on which the Bible was written. Uh, they wrote on clay, clay tablets. Then secondly, later on, they wrote on the skins of animals called vellum. But that's expensive. Later on, they discovered a very cheap writing material it came from a papyrus reed, and they would slit that reed open and slit it down and take those slits, run them one way, run them the other way, and there was some glue in, in, involved in it. It's kind of a gluey substance, and stick together. Then they cut sheets of it, or they cut long rolls of it. And then they'd write on those long rolls, papyrus. And most of that down in Egypt and in Palestine, which is very dry, the 
Consequently, since it's dry, those papyrus scrolls have lasted for 2,500 years. Now, the great seaport of the Mediterranean, <clears throat> one of the great seaports of the world, was a seaport in uh, Phoenicia called B-Y-B-L-O-S, Biblos. And a lot of the papyrus was shipped out of Biblos. So eventually, that the material, the port out of which the material was shipped, was given to the book. It was called Biblos. We get the word Bible given to us from the port out of which it was shipped, Biblos. So we have three things for the Bible. The Bible, the Holy Scripture, the Word of God. Number six, languages used in writing the Bible. The languages used in writing the Bible. Basically, there are two languages used in writing the Bible. Old Testament written in Hebrew. And the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, there are small portions of the Old Testament that were written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the lingua franca of that day. Let's say the days of Jesus and Paul. Uh, this area that starts at the Persian Gulf, goes north up to Syria, Mesopotamia, <clears throat> then comes down south of Nile. That call was called by James Breasted at the University of Chicago around the turn of the century. That was called the Fertile Crescent. The language that was used on that Fertile Crescent was called Aramaic, just as the French language was the language of commerce, the lingua franca, so Aramaic became the lingua franca that day. So we got some parts... Uh, of the Old Testament, very small, written in Aramaic. Uh, parts of Daniel are written in Aramaic. About Daniel 2.4 to the end of Daniel 7, written in Aramaic. And part of Ezra is written in Aramaic. And there are a few other verses written in Aramaic. Aramaic was a very a language very similar to Hebrew. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The scholars spoke Hebrew in the days of Jesus. But the Jew uh, uh, spoke Aramaic, or he spoke Greek. They were bilingual. And Aramaic was the language of commerce, and parts of our Old Testament written in Aramaic. But primarily, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, and all the New Testament written in Greek. Number eight, number seven, chapters and verses. I suppose you know that chapters and verses were later editions. When they wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament, they didn't write them in chapters. The chapters, verses were introduced earlier in the church in the Christian centuries. I don't know the exact date, but early, say the second or third century. Our present system of verses was introduced by a printer by the name of Robert Stevens in the 16th century. The chapter divisions, the ones probably came from the Masoretes, and the ones that we have was the uh, Probably the ones that were uh, chapter divisions that were introduced by Cardinal Hugo in the uh, 11th century. Up to that time, and the Greek uh, uh, manuscript was all written like, I went, all capitals, they ran together. I went to town, like this. And they 
Anybody could understand that. They, they knew where those breaks went. And, uh, but later on, they put them in verse divisions, and then later on, they put them in chapter divisions, and they were introduced later on. Some of the chapter divisions uh, are, are poor chapter divisions. They're not good. Uh, there ought not to be a, a break there, but nevertheless it is, and it helps us in finding it. Number eight, manuscripts and versions. Number eight, manuscripts and versions. What's the difference between a manuscript and a version? Well, a manuscript is a copy written in the same language. A manuscript of John's gospel would be John's gospel written, a copy of it written in Greek. A version is simply another name for translation. And uh, <clears throat> whereas there are about, uh, oh, a dozen Greek manuscripts of the historian Herodotus, and about 11 or 12 Greek manuscripts of the Greek historian Thucydides, and none of them earlier than a thousand years. Those men lived about 4,400 B.C., <clears throat> and there's nothing earlier than about 600 A.D., and there are only 10 of them. The New Testament has over, today, over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Now, that's not a whole manuscript. The oldest one is a uh, manuscript called the John Ryland Papyrus. It only has part of John chapter 18, but it dates about 150 A.D. John wrote his gospel, 95 A.D. That's in within 20 years, isn't it? Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, Herodotus, nothing closer than a thousand years. The gospel of John, within 20 years. I want to tell you the documentary evidence for the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, especially the New Testament, is a thousand times superior to the documentary evidence for the ancient writings. And yet you go over to state universities and study ancient history, and you would never know that there was any problem in studying ancient history. You would never hear that, that the evidence on which it rests may go back a thousand years, and there's a blank of a thousand years between the events and the earliest manuscript described in that. You would never know it, nor would I. But the documentary evidence for the New Testament is magnificent, nothing of which we have to be ashamed. Matter of fact, it creates a problem for us. And the problem is, we have so many, we have to put down and, and determine what is the test. That's a highly sophisticated, proper study called textual criticism or lower criticism. I got into a little of it when I was in seminary, but not much of it. It's developed in a highly sophisticated science since the days I was in seminary. And a man has to almost give his, uh, his time, almost full time to it. I got a letter from a young man that went to our school. He, uh, he went to Memphis State. He went one year to Mid-South Bible College, took our basic Bible course, then he went on to Dallas Seminary, got his Master of Theology degree, went on to Harvard and got his Ph.D. 
now is uh, on the faculty of Dallas Theological Seminary, an outstanding student. He wrote back, he said, you know, I've taken hundreds of courses, universities, seminaries, Harvard. He said, the courses that I got under you and Mr. Davidson, if I can say it, were probably the finest courses I ever had that stabilized my life. And he went on to say, this year, this is the summertime, he said, I'm preparing lectures in Acadia. And I wrote Walter back. I said, I don't even know what Acadian is. <laughs> well, I do know what it is, but I'm out of the swing. When I assumed the presidency of this school, I had to kind of lay that aside, and I'm out of the swing somewhat. But Acadian is a certain type of language and a certain type of people, germane to Old Testament study. We may run across them a little later. But here, he's preparing in the summertime for lectures in the Acadian language, which is somewhat germane uh, to Aramaic and Hebrew. All right, number nine, materials used. What materials? I've already mentioned them. Clay, clay, vellum, primarily vellum, that is animal skins, and papyrus. And they came in two forms. Up until the second century B.C., they wrote on rolls like like this. You've seen Old Testament rolls. If you've gone to a synagogue, you've probably seen a roll and uh, with two sticks in it, and they wrote on those rolls, and uh, they had a collar here, written here, and then they would unroll it and read it that way. Go along. It was written on rolls. A codex, that is the book form, was not introduced until the second century. That's why you read in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation, you read about a roll. What he's talking about is the roll that it's done. And today, of course, uh, with printing, we have nothing but uh, books or what would be called a codex. Now, number 10, on the outline, writing in ancient times. You know, about a hundred years ago, the liberals scoffed at the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Moses couldn't write because nobody knew how to write. Writing wasn't known until about uh, between 800 and 1000 B.C. Moses lived about 1400 B.C. And since they didn't know how to write, Moses could not be the author of the Pentateuch. But since that day, archaeology has made tremendous advances. And as Nelson Glick, who was the president of the Hebrew Union College, is a Jewish scholar, an outstanding Jewish scholar, perhaps one of the five greatest uh, Hebrew Semitic uh, Hebrew scholars, archaeologists in the world. He died. Uh, he, he died recently. But Nelson Glick said that there's never been one discovery in archaeology that contradicted anything in the Bible. I thought that was a significant statement from a scholar like that. Well, since that time, they found that writing is an ancient art, that men knew how to write when Abraham was living. They now know that men were capable of writing back in 33, 3400 B.C., although they may have used pictographs. By the time that Moses wrote, they had developed an alphabet. 
So there was no problem with Moses writing. Writing was well known by the time of Moses. And another one of the objections of the liberals, the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, bit the proverbial cowboy duck. See? Now let's go to the second thing, facts about the Old Testament. Facts about the Old Testament. Let's look at this quickly. Facts about the Old Testament. There's seven things. First of all, the content. The number of books in the Old Testament are 39. Now they're arranged in different ways. The earliest arrangement was probably a twofold arrangement, and it was the law and the prophets. And Jesus refers to it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, another place. The law is the first five books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the prophets were all the rest of the Old Testament books, the other 34. Then a little later, they divided it into three sections. And they called it the law and the prophets and the writings. And the law was the first five books. And the prophets uh, embraced about 12 books, uh, such as Joshua and Judges. And Samuel was considered one book. And Kings, the two kings, considered one book. And then the latter prophets, and among them were the twelve minor prophets considered as one book. <clears throat> and then the third group was called the writings or the Kasubim. And they included 13 books, but some of them were put together. The Jews had 26 books in their Old Testament, or 24. We've got 39, but they're all the same because the Jews considered chronicles as one book. We consider them as two. The Jews considered First and Second Kings as one book, we consider them as two. Ezra and Nehemiah, one book, we consider them two. Twelve minor prophets, one book, we consider them twelve. So the Jews had exactly the same books we have, no more. And Jesus Christ, by the way, never quoted from the Apocrypha nor did the Jews acknowledge it on the same plane as they did the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, we've got a fourfold division, don't we? We have uh, first the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Secondly, history, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Twelve books. Then poetry, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, so on down the line, five books. And then 17 prophetic books. Now, you know these. You don't need to write them down. You get the index to your Bible, you have it. Five, twelve, five, seventeen, thirty-nine books. Now, where do we, that's a fourfold division. Where do we get that fourfold division? Well, about 250, 200 B.C., if you will look here, a lot of Jews migrated down into Egypt, and uh, uh, they lost the, some facility with the Hebrews. Along about the same time, one of the Ptolemy, the kings down there, wanted to have the Old Testament scripture in the greatest library of the day. The greatest library of the day was the library in Alexandria. 
It was the greatest library of the day. King wanted to have a copy. So he got certain Hebrew scholars together. Tradition says 72. Uh, probably some embellishment in that tradition. But what is true is that Hebrew scholars sat down and translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. And the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek is called the Septuagint. Septuagint. Now let's all say that. What is it called? Septuagint. Say it again. What is it called? And it's indicated by an LXX, 70, 72 scholars. LXX. Now, when the Septuagint was translated, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language, they arranged it differently. They arranged it the way we arrange it today. Five books of Moses, 12 of history, Joshua, to Ezra, the Amiastra, five of poetry, and 17 of prophecy. So, the Latin Vulgate picked that up, and our modern versions picked that up, and we have that fourfold division. But the point we need to underscore, are you all listening? Whether we got the twofold division, or the threefold division, or the fourfold division, whether we have the 24 books of the Jews, or the 39 books of our Old Testament, we have exactly the same book. No more, no less. Why do we accept those books, no more, no less? Why do we accept Esther? Some men don't. Why do we? Why do we not accept the Apostle? What is the key to it? My friend, the key to it is the authority of Christ. He's the key to inspiration, and he's the key to canonicity. Because Jesus accepted the law of the prophets, or the law of the prophets and the song, therefore the Christian accepts the law, the prophets, and the song. The man asked me, why do you accept the 39 books of the Old Testament? And why do you believe they're inspired? I say, because Jesus Christ the Lord of the church did. The man says, well, I won't accept that authority. Well then, now I'm not being facetious. Then the argument's no longer the inspiration of the Bible. The argument is the deity of Christ. See, uh, I've gone over recently with the students in class. The outer circle is theism. Does a personal sovereign God exist? The next circle is the deity of Christ and the inner circle is the inspiration and canonicity of the Bible. We don't argue from the inspiration of the Bible to the deity of Jesus. Now we do that experimentally. We do it as little children. We did it as a matter of experience. I grew up, I sang the hymn, Jesus loves me, this I know. For somebody's experience told me so. What does it say? 
Why do I know that Jesus is God? The Bible says it. Why do I believe that Jesus loves me? The Bible says it. Why do I believe that Jesus died for sinners? The Bible says it. That's why I accept it. Now, that's the, that's the methodology of experience. That's how I came to salvation, to trust the Bible. And I've never really had any questions myself about the Bible. I've studied apologetics, but I've never had any real doubt. Now, that's experimentally, but apologetically, we argue from the existence of a personal God, secondly, to the deity of Jesus. Now, if Jesus Christ is God, he speaks truth. If Jesus is God, he speaks truth, being God. What did Jesus say? Scripture can't be broken. It's infallible. What did Jesus say? Inspired down to the jot and the tittle. What did Jesus do? He reached back 1,400 years, got hold of the present tense of a verb, and proved the doctrine of bodily resurrection to the Sadducees on the basis of the present tense of the verb. Did Jesus believe in verbal inspiration? He did. And that's why I do. So when a man asks me, why do you believe? In the inerrancy of the scriptures, I answer, because Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church did. Now, if he won't accept that, then the argument in another place. I can't have my cake and eat it too. I can't accept the deity of Jesus and deny what he said about the Bible. I've got to accept both of them or jettison both of them, logically. Jesus Christ is the key to canonicity. All right, now let's look at number two, the time span of the Old Testament. The time span of the Old Testament. Well, from Genesis 1, the date of which we do not know, until Malachi 4, uh, which took place about 430 B.C. And the period of time over which the books are written, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, that's about 1400 B.C., and down to 430 B.C. The geography of the Old Testament, we'll look at that later. The origin of the nation, we'll look at that later. The chronology of the Old Testament, let's look at that, and then let's get the survey, and then time will catch it. Now, now we want to look at the chronology of the Old Testament. How do we get the chronology of the Old Testament? Now, you're all going to have to put on your thinking caps for this. I, last night, I got one of my boys, and I ran this by him to see if he could understand it. <coughs> he walked out a little groggy. <laughs> how do we get the, uh, how do we, how do we um, nail down the chronology of the Old Testament? Well, this is the way we do it. <coughs> uh, <clears throat> the Babylonians used what they called an eponym list. I don't like to use this word, but an eponym list meant that uh, every year was every year was named after a certain leading man, like uh, uh, okay, like uh, 1970 would be Nixon, and 1971 would be Johnson, 1972 would be Kennedy, and so on down the line. Eponym. <clears throat> They discovered that a certain king, his name was uh, Bersagel, about 743 B.C., 
was, was that year was named after him, and there was an eclipse in that year. The scientists, they didn't know, they didn't know it was 743 B.C. They knew that the year, that year was named after this man, Bar Sago, there was an eclipse. The scientists went, discovered that that year was 743 B.C. So then they took <clears throat> the eponym list of these kings, and they took the Old Testament kings, and they found two that equaled. One was the Shalmaneser III, and Ahab, and they found the date that Ahab died, which slips me right now, about 875, let's say. Now, they got that date that Ahab died, 875. After doing that, after getting that date, they then started back. Ahab died, let's say, 875. They started going back. They got Ahab reign, let's say, 15 years. And that brings us to 890 B.C. The man that was king before him reigned, let's say, 10 years. That brings us to 900 B.C. The next man reigned three, the next six, the next so on. We find that Jeroboam, who followed Solomon, reigned about 20 years from about 930 to 910 B.C. And we discover that Solomon died in 930 B.C. Both liberals and conservatives agree to that. Solomon died, give or take a year, 930, 931, 929, 930 B.C. Now, Solomon reigned. Let's move this down here. Solomon died in 930 B.C. Solomon, we know, reigned for 40 years. That means he began reigning in 970 B.C. Now, now, in the Old Testament, there are what is called two long dates. I want all of you to locate these two long dates. The first one is in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 6, and the second one is in, is in, I, is in Exodus chapter 12. First Kings chapter six. First Kings chapter six, and uh, uh, we read in First Kings chapter six, verse one. We read these words, and it came to pass in the four hundred and eightieth year after the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. All right, the fourth year of Solomon's reign was 976 B.C. He began reigning in 9-7, so the fourth year of Solomon's reign was 9 pardon me, 966 B.C. Now, the Exodus took place how many years before? What does it say there? How many? How many? All right. What we have to do is to go back 480 years. 
Now let's take 966 and add it to 480. What do we get? 6, 4, 14. So the exodus out of Egypt took place in 1446 B.C. That's the first long date. That's found in 1 Kings 6.1. So the exodus took place in 1446 B.C. and they were in the wilderness 40 years and the entrance in Canaan took place about 1406 B.C. Exodus, Exodus 12, 14, 46 B.C. Now, how long were they in Egypt? Let's look at Exodus chapter 12, the second long date. Exodus chapter 12, the second long date. Exodus chapter 12, the second long date. And I see that Mr. Matthews has circled this verse which is good. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. Exodus 12, 40. Now, that Exodus is the second book you know in the Bible. Exodus 12, 40. Now, the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was how long? 480 years. So, we've got how many years? 430 years. 430 years. So, we take it back here. Now, when did Jacob go down into Egypt? 430 years before 1446. So they put 1446 and 1430, and we get 1876. When did Jacob in Genesis 46, Genesis 47, go down into Egypt? He went down in 1876. How old was how old was Jacob when he went down there? Well, he was 130 years. So we take 1876 and add 130, and we get 2006, and that's when Jacob was born, 2006. How old was uh, Isaac when Jacob was born? Isaac was 60. Genesis 25, 26. So we add... 60 to that, and Isaac was born 2066. How old was Abraham when he gave birth at 2066 to Isaac? How old? Well, you know, 100 years. So when was Abraham born? <clears throat> 2166 BC. When did he leave? and enter Canaan, 75 years later, which is 2091 B.C. He left Ur the Chaldees at 2106 B.C., and he got into Canaan about 15 years later, 2091 B.C. So here are the two long dates. One of them is 1 Kings 6.1, and the other one is Exodus 12.40. And then we add the dates of those men, and we get back to 2166 B.C. Now, look up here. Now, we're, we're in Genesis chapter 12. Now, going back from Genesis 12 to Genesis 1, how do we get the dates? Well, then we run into some problems. And the problems that we run into are 
Are there any gaps? Are there any gaps in those genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 10? And number two, how long are the days in Genesis chapter 1? 24-hour days or long periods of time? I tend to believe they're 24-hour days. One of our board members, Major Allen, the Thomas H. Allen clan, very strong believer in verbal inspiration, on our board, chairman of the board of Dallas Theological Seminary, also on the board of Young Life, National Board of Young Life, he believed very strongly that they were long periods of time. General Harrison, who signed the Korean Peace Treaty, and who every morning studied his Bible for one hour, even in Korea, believed that they were 24 hours, but between each day, there was a long period of time. So Bible leaders have different views on this. So we can get back to Genesis 12, the birth of Abraham, 2166 B.C. But then going back beyond that, the flood, Babel, the flood, the fall, creation, we have a little more difficulty. And that's the chronology. Now, you all got that real clear now, haven't you? That's real easy. All right. All right. Now, you'll have to kind of think of that, and I'll tell you what we're going to have to do since the time is almost up, uh, we are going to have to stop. Last night, I studied. I studied. I've been studying for two weeks for this one class, and last night when I looked at this, I said, <clears throat> unless the clocks run slow, <laughs> which they didn't, we're not going to get through. So, next time. Now, what's the assignment for next time? And I'll turn that on in just a minute. Will you look up here? What I want you to do for next time, now, we'll make it easy. Next time, we're going to get a, this. We're going to devote the whole class to an overview of the Old Testament from Genesis 1 to Malachi 4. I want you to read those 12 critical passages. 12, what are they? Genesis 1, Genesis 12, Exodus 12, Joshua 1, uh, Judges 1, 1 Samuel 8, 1 Kings 12, 2 Kings 17, 2 Kings 25, Ezra 1, and Nehemiah 13. 12 critical, those are those uplights, the 12 critical passages, and we're going to study that next time. All right, let me make a couple of announcements, and then we'll be through, and uh, I want to try and close.